All right. Good morning. Let's get this show on the road. What do I need? Let us pray. Lord Jesus Christ, you promised to bring wisdom to those who hear your word. Grant this morning that our ears might be uncovered to hear the promises that you have for us in your saving grace, the blood that you shed on the cross and delivered to us in your holy sacrament. We pray this in your most holy name. Amen. All right. So, um, so I, I, uh, yesterday, this is a complete... This, I, I, first, I thought this was going to be a complete non sequitur. I'm going to have nothing to do with Bible study. But then as I thought about it more, I thought of a way to relate it, which is, I guess, <laughs> either good or bad. So, I don't know. Um, so, remember that discussion we had um, in Mere Christianity about dimensions? Do you remember, remember that discussion about... So, so C.S. Lewis said, maybe what we don't understand about heaven and about God is kind of like how a two-dimensional creature can't understand what a, third, what a third dimension would be like, right? Okay, so yesterday, somebody asked me a question about, um, about the wounds of Jesus in the resurrection. So in the resurrection, Jesus still has his wounds. Um, and in fact, they're really important in, in, right after Easter because Thomas needs to see the wounds. And Jesus says, see, look, my hands... Um, and uh, the, the question was, what, well, certainly there were more wounds than just holes in his hands and in his side. He was scourged. Probably, probably his body was, was, was mutilated, right? Well, um, this, this got me thinking because I, I just heard a, uh, a radio story about colors. So now stick with me here. I'm going to try and get this is a stream of consciousness. So um, I, I, the, it occurred to me. Uh, you know that you know that when, if you're colorblind, um, it means that. Uh, so, no, so okay, we'll start this way. Normally, um, you can perceive three colors. You have three three kinds of cones in your eyes that perceive three colors. You try trichromoids, they call you. Um, and if you're colorblind, one of those cones is 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 not doing what it's supposed to do, right? Well, it turns out there are other creatures, other animals that have more than three. Cones, for instance, butterflies can perceive a, a broader spectrum. Um, so when they look at the rainbow, it begins at red and it goes, you know, higher than what does it go? Indigo violet, right? Likewise, a mantis shrimp has twice as many cones as any other animal. So this is this brilliant creature under the sea that can perceive all these colors. Well, one of the difficulty, one of the interesting things is that we have no way to conceptualize what another color would look like, right? We have only the colors that are in our palette. Red, the primary colors, what are they? Red, the, yeah, red, yellow, blue, the spectrum. So the, and it's, it goes, ranges from red to violet. Now, we know scientifically that light is, the visible light is one small segment of the whole electromagnetic spectrum that goes all the way from ultra, you know, beneath ultraviolet light to x-rays and microwaves and all of these things, right? So, but we can't see them with our eyes. We can't perceive them with our eyes, and we can't conceptualize them. So, in fact, when we want to look at them, we, um, we do things like we ascribe colors to them. So when we want to look at parts of uh, other, other ranges in, in the electromagnetic spectrum, we give them colors. It's the easiest way for us to do it. Well, so how does this relate? Um, when we look at the wounds of Jesus, when we see the wounds of Jesus with, with these eyes, it's sort of like looking at them um, 
as trichromoids. They look like wounds. And what are wounds? They're bad. They're not good. They're only suffering. They're, 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 they're um, ugly, right? Um, and the result of wickedness. And, um, this, and it's not the fault of um, the, it's not the fault of Jesus' glorified body that those wounds might be ugly to us, but it's the fault of our, our mm-hmm. eyes. Because in the cross, in, in uh, Jesus' suffering, in redemption, his wounds become, in fact, the most beautiful thing in the world, right? So, this, now this is where I become purely speculative, but in, in heaven, imagine that it's like this, that your eyes, your eyes are now opened to see beauty in things that otherwise would have been ugly to you, right? In particular, things that would have been the, op- you know, the wounds of Jesus. So how can you imagine a Jesus in heaven who, who bears these marks? Well, you've got, you've got a glorified eyes, eyes that are open to a, a broader spectrum of, of glory, of beauty um, in heaven, Okay. So I was thinking about that, and I, and I think that that may, might be one way to answer the question of, you know, why does Jesus still bear his wounds? Well, it's just that here on earth, we, can, we, we struggle. It's, so it's by faith that we understand his wounds to be beautiful and redemptive, right? It's by faith. It's not because they look beautiful, right? It's because we, we receive it by faith. But in heaven, um, they will be beautiful, right? Our eyes will see them as beautiful, um, so it was, it's just like if you were, if you were um, a butterfly and you looked at the rainbow and it was more, it was more spectacular than anything you've ever seen, you a human, a trichromoid has ever seen before. Okay, so that sort of relates to the great divorce because um, I think what you find out in this chapter, in these two chapters, any questions? Did that make sense? Or was that complete nonsense to you? Okay, all right. It's, it's also just... Just pure speculation. So, um, but hang on to that. It might, maybe it'll come in helpful someday. I don't think it's that far from when the, Jesus was in his glory when he was lifted up on the cross. And to think of that as when the first time I heard that, I thought that's right. You gotta be kidding, you gotta be kidding me. Yeah, yeah, yeah. In, but now I see it and understand it. Yeah, absolutely. So I think it's similar. Okay. All right. Thank you, Marilyn. I appreciate that. So, I, so now here's how it relates, how it might relate to the great divorce. So here we have this picture. So C.S. Lewis takes us into heaven now. We're in heaven. And, um, well, we need to talk about the, we need to talk about the contents. Um, but when we're there, we find out that um, there's something kind of inadequate about, about the, the bodies that, um, that arrive, right? Um, but, but there's something glorious about the bodies that have been there, that have been transformed. Okay, so let's, uh, let's dive in. First of all, do you have any questions We're on chapters 3 and 4 uh, uh, of The Great Divorce? Do you have any questions? No questions. Okay, so now I've got for you about eight comprehension questions written on the page there. And uh, we'll just do this. So um, this, can go, this can go for either, either as long or as short as you want, basically based on how interesting you find it. I have for you, just as a, if, if, there's a, uh, a clip of the movie Jesus of Nazareth, and I'm totally, rip, I'm completely ripping off, ripping this off from, from Pastor Peter Ladick, who showed it to us at the men's retreat. Um, 
but we can, I, I'd, lo I'd love to show that to you. It's, about, it's, it's a little bit lengthy. It's about 11 minutes long. So if we have time at the end, I'd like to show it to you. And it relates, it relates perfectly to chapter 4. So we can, we can get there too. Um, okay, so chapter 3, the bus has taken off from the bus station. Now describe the place it lands. Where, what's it like? It has flowers and can't pull out of the ground. Okay. okay. <laughs> so now, um, so, so yeah, so solid things are more solid than you'd expect. You can't, you can't even lift, you can't lift them up, right? You can't walk because it's like walking on diamonds. Right. So, so if you were going to interpret that, what does that mean? Well, when he first got off the bus, it was cool and light and pretty. And yeah. Or warm. Right. Like a spring. It's, it's that sunrise. magical time. Or just before the sun rises, right? Just before yeah. the sun rises. Yeah. And it's ethereal. Yeah. Yeah, so it's certainly a beautiful picture, but there's something un something unnerving about it, right? Because he can't even lift up a leaf, and he can't pluck a didn't bend under his feet, right? But what does that say about the physical substance, the phys the difference between the physical substance in heaven and the physical substance that he he'd known to this point? It's it it, it makes it it makes it almost Ghostly, yeah. Uh, so he uses the word phantom, right? Um, uh, the, the, the people are transparent. It's, um, it's like this new place is more real. It's not different, right? There's grass and flowers and trees and sunshine and all these beautiful things. It's not different stuff, but it is more solid, more real, more physical, if you will, right? Um, so what does that say about the resurrection? What, is that, what does that tell us about the resurrection? I'm, go, I'm, gonna, I'm just going to persist in asking really open-ended questions. So you're going to have to... You're going to have to... <laughs> it's more, more complete. Yeah, okay. Uh, maybe you could even say it's the completion of what, what, what we're, uh, what we're um, proceeding in right now, right? So we have, we have these bodies which are... Which, which, which are burdened with sin. And the, the burden of sin here is described as this sort of transparency, this, this um, uh, sort of not really there kind of quality. Um, and and it's go, we're moving towards completion, towards being, being solid. Yeah. Well, the resurrection gives us new life. Right. And when they got to heaven from the bus, their earthly bodies no longer function on the hard grass or anything. So when you get to heaven, we're promised a new body that will be able to walk on the grass, so to speak, and right. do things in a different way right. than what we're accustomed to. He's still thinking in earthly terms, not heavenly terms. Right. Yeah, and, and, um, so it, it's, that, and it's great because what, what Lewis is trying to hold in, in, in uh, parallel here is, on the one hand, um, that the resurrection is, a, is not just... This, and this is often a misconception, right? It's not just your soul goes off into soul land, right? That's not... The, it, it matters that Jesus bodily rose from the dead and is bodily present with us in the sacrament and that Jesus keeps his human nature, right? He doesn't, he doesn't rise from the dead and throw off his human nature and go back to being, uh, being only divine, He's divine and human, meaning, and what makes a human a human? Body and soul, right? So, Lewis is here holding in tension the, the, the fact that 
um, the physical is, is utterly important in the resurrection. That's a, part, that's a, that's a huge part of the resurrection. Um, but there's something, but as, as we find in the dialogue, there's, some, there's this spiritual component, uh, this, this uh, uh, spiritual component, which is also all important as well. Okay, Ellen. And we're going from this life, which is, which is transient, to the permanent. Right. Right, yeah, what is the line? Um, the big man, um, now, chap- page 22, we're a couple pages into chapter 3. The big man, um, you know, the people get off the bus and they're all, they're all in a fuss. And um, one of the ghosts started past me. This is top of page 22. She never came back out of the bus again, as far as I know. The others remained uncertain. Now listen, this is just such a great description of it. Hi, mister, said the big man, addressing the driver. When have we got to go back? You need never come back unless you want to, he replied. Stay as long as you please. There was an awkward pause, right? So... Yeah, so he, the the idea of this permanence, um, this motion from transience to permanence, um, is kind of is kind of confounding, right? Um, that that somehow this glorious thing doesn't have to end. It's not going to not going to come to an end, Holly. Right. Right. Yeah, yeah, and and that's that's, that's precisely what we see the the, the the big objections are. Right. Um, I don't I don't I can't imagine how this place could be better than you know the, the place I was or or, or um, the place you feel comfortable. Right. Right. Or I'm not I'm not interested in leaving behind the things that I've. I've found to comfort me um, in, the, in, in, this, in the former place. Okay, great. All uh, right. So then we've already talked about what's different about this place and the bus stop. And, then, and what's different about the, tra- the passengers, this is, I mean, basically they're transparent, right? So um, when they're in the light, it's as, it's as if they're not there. You can see right through them. There's, there's, there's no substance to them. And the quotation at the bottom of page 21 I thought was a great... A great quotation, to, which um, which expresses kind of the, well th- this moment of realization um, that uh, that all things in this world pass away, that death is that death is um, the, the the end of all things in this world. Um, note what C.S. Lewis says. He says he he looks on his feet and sees through them. I also was a phantom. Who will give me words to express the terror of that discovery? Right, it sounds like Paul. What, what does he say? Oh, um, ah, he's talking about he's talking about sin, and he says uh, something like, "Woe is me! Who will save me from who will save me from this this terrible state that I'm in?" Right? He uh, he's a phantom too. What's going to happen? Yeah, Nancy. Yeah. Sure. Yeah, yeah, absolutely, absolutely, right. Um, and, and and that's an, another thing, too. Um, uh, so in terms, of, in terms of color, in terms of, in terms of having eyes to see, um, I think that so oftentimes folks 
wonder about the resurrection, about your resurrected body, say, asking, well, you know, what about, what about disfigurement and deformity? You know, what, what does that look, what happens in the resurrection? Um, well, we know that uh, just like the wounds of Jesus are going to be beautiful, just imagine how all of the things that we take, that we, that we consider to be thorns in our side in this, in this life, when we see the great purposes that God had for them um, in heaven with new eyes, just think, just think how beautiful things that we, we to this point had thought were ugly. You know, just think how beautiful they will be. Um, okay, now let's see, page 22. Uh, we've got, uh, we, we meet a character here, so let's talk about this guy a little bit. This is um, uh, one of the quieter and more respectable ghosts. Okay, but uh, and it's not very optimistic considering that this is one of the quieter and more respectable ghosts, right? So he says, this is simply ridiculous. This is page 22. There must be some mismanagement. What's the sense of allowing all that riffraff to float about here all day? Look at them. They're not enjoying it. They'd be far happier at home. They don't even know what to do. And then down at the bottom, he says, one's chief object in coming here was to avoid them, or to, it was, at all was to avoid them, right? So... Um, I mean, there's not, there's not, it's all right there. There's not much to say about it. But what, what, what kind of, what, what's this fellow's problem? What's, what, uh, what does he think heaven is supposed to be? Yeah, right, right, yeah. Not the riffraff. Right. And he, now look, he's also, um, he says, oh me, I shall be met in a moment or two. I'm expected, right? It's the people who, it's the people who know what, What's coming, right? It's the people with, who are in the who are in the inn, who uh, who have the have the knowledge, who can who uh, who um, know how things are going to work and how things are going to turn out. But all these other people who, who have no clue what to do here in heaven, um, you know, what what are they doing here? And what and and uh, shouldn't I be avoiding them, right? Okay, uh, Krista. Is it judgment? Yeah. Absolutely, yeah, yeah. I mean, so you have, it's, uh, it's, there's all kinds of great biblical illustrations, and we'll get to a couple of them here in a second. Um, but the one that stands out to me is the, the, Pharise- the Pharisee and the publican, right? Standing in the temple and praying. And the, the Pharisee, remember his prayer? What does he say? Thank you, thank you God, that I'm not like, those, like, like, like that tax collector over there. And... You know, so one of, the, one of the great things, I think we did this in women's Bible study when I was a vicar, um, the, one of the interesting things about that story is when you, have, when, you see that, when you hear that story, the Pharisee and the publican, it's a story that Jesus tells. They're in the temple and they're praying. The, publican, the Pharisee stands, um, you know, uh, stands up and prays this loud prayer. Um, and you imagine in your head that he's all glamorous and, uh, and, and showing off when in fact... His piety is is probably uh, from the outside very not not ostentatious. He's probably very um, humble in his dress, um, and it, but his but his prayer is the opposite of of humility. Meanwhile, there's this fellow over there who hardly knows what a temple is for. You know, this is the first time he's set foot in church, right? And he's not dressed for the part. He's wearing he's wearing he's got bling on. I can't say that word without sounding like a yeah, he's, so he, um, he's, he's dressed like a tax collector, and um, uh, he doesn't fit the part. And uh, it's, it's, it's the exact same story. But what is his prayer? 
Father, ha Lord, have mercy on me, right? Have mercy on me. And that we know that the tax collector went home justified, right? Okay. Now, describe the... So then a bunch of people show up, the bright people. Describe them. What are they like? Right, right. So they, so even though they look different, they are none of them one less uh, beautiful or adorned than the other, right? Right. Yeah. And 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 when they walk, this sweet smell from you know the dew. Mm -hmm. Because when they walk, their feet sink down into the into the grass, right? This this blade of grass that, that C.S. Lewis, the author, couldn't couldn't even pluck up. When they walk, they they just trample the grass. Yeah. Well, if you look on page twenty four at the top, it said um, that the people they were massive grandeur and they had a lot of muscle and smooth flat. Some were bearded. Um, some of the company struck the author as being of no particular Yeah, age. isn't that interesting? So they were just kind of there. Yeah, yeah. And uh, I, I know he, he says, one gets glimpses of that which is ageless. And I was trying to, trying to picture that. I don't know. I, I couldn't. He must, he must have something in particular in mind. Uh, heavy thought in the face of an infant or, and frolic childhood in the, that of a very old man. Maybe that's a little bit more familiar. Frolic childhood in the face of a very old man. Uh, but that's what he has in mind for how, how the agelessness of these. My children aren't very deep thinkers, so I'll um, just put that on the, the internet for them to find later. Um, uh, frolic childhood and that of a very old man. I think it's a. Uh, you can picture that, right? You can you can picture that uh, that kind of agelessness. Yeah. The picture here is though that these people belong in this situation because they can walk on the grass. Yeah. You know, they're, they're quote-unquote, in their glory. They, yeah, they've become acclimated to... And they're not... To, to the, that's right. Yep. That's right. Okay, great. Um, so, and we talked about what this has to do with the resurrection of the body. So this is, this is kind of what the, what the point is here, right? So there's two things going on simultaneously. One is that their bodies are somehow inferior to the bright people's bodies, but also you've got people like this quiet, respectable gentleman who doesn't quite understand, who doesn't get it, who doesn't, who doesn't um, see how, uh, how, what relationships are supposed to be like in this new place. And that's where chapter 4 becomes really interesting. So let's, so the one question I have for you here, comprehension question, what's the deal with the big ghost? <laughs> Yeah. Okay, and, and not only I'm okay. He's a former employee. Right. Okay. Becomes his escort. That's right. Okay. Okay. So the big the big ghost. Um, at, at, so all these bright people are coming along, and they've each got somebody in, that's come off the bus in mind that they're going to be a guide for, um, and it happens to be that the the guide for the big man is somebody who murdered uh, uh, Jack. Right. Right. So what is now, um, and this is obviously dis 
dis, uh, uncomfortable for the big ghost. What is his, what is his main objection? He basically gets stu- gets stuck in a uh, on repeat. What is his, what's his objection? I want my rights. I came here to have my rights, and um, oh, the, oh, the presumption of you, that, that you, this murderer, aren't you ashamed, right? Um, and so, many interesting, so many interesting things in the dialogue. Um, page 27, he, he says, uh, aren't you, ash- top, of the, top of the page, aren't you ashamed of yourself? Um, and then the, the, the bright person, the murderer, says, no, not as you mean. I don't look at myself. I have given up myself. I had to, you know, after the murder. That was what did it for me, and that was how everything began, right? Meanwhile, the, the, uh, uh, the big ghost, he's quite the opposite, right? So he's not giving up himself. He's looking at himself all the time. He says at the, at the bottom of the page, see, he says, i gone straight all my life. I don't say I was a religious man, and I don't say I had no faults. Far from it. So he has this, this feigned humility. I had faults, but I've done my best all my life. I've done my best by everyone. That's the sort of chap I was. And you get, the, you get a sense. I don't know if you remember from the first two chapters. We get a sense of what it means for him to do his best. So like uh, he's, he just shoves somebody in line. And uh, we, we, got, we, we, we saw him a couple of times earlier in the book. Um, he, he pushes somebody out of the way. And, and when they're talking on the bus, he tells them to, um, to, to quit spreading rumors. You shut your face. He's, he's, uh, he's not a very... Friendly fellow, right? Um, and he and uh, he tells he tells the intelligent man to hit the author. He says so. The 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 intelligent man that they're talking they're talking about. Um, uh, well, he, the, the author has his head out the window, and the intelligent man says, "You want us to catch a, a death of cold and hit him a biff?" Says the big man, right? So he's so his idea of of doing um, what's best by everyone is is off for one thing. But then also he has um, this sense of his rights. I've never asked for anything that wasn't mine by rights. If I wanted a drink, I paid for it. And if I took my wages, I did my job. That's the sort I was, and I don't care who knows it. And that's the refrain that he has, right? I want it by, by rights. He doesn't want charity. doesn't want charity. He doesn't want anybody to give him it. Like right, right. I'm not asking for anybody's bleeding charity, which, I mean, Lewis is a really, is this great literary work here. Then do, at, at once, page 28, ask for the bleeding charity, right? Um, uh, charity is, is, a, is a key word here because um, it's the Greek, it, so it comes from the Greek word charis, which is the word for, word for love, right? Ask for the bleeding love. Everything here is for the asking and nothing can be bought, right? Um, I wanted to, so since I love 1 Samuel, um, look at 1 Samuel um, this this whole bit about the big ghost and and getting things that are coming to him, right? Getting having his rights um, reminded me of this story that we have in First Samuel. So the Israelites are always sort of battling with the Philistines, and um, and they do this this uh, they, well here I'll read it I'll read it for you and then uh, we can talk about it. So the word of Samuel came to all Israel. And Israel went out to battle against the Philistines. They encamped at Ebenezer, and the Philistines encamped at Aphek. The Philistines drew up in line against Israel, and when the battle spread, Israel was defeated before the Philistines, who killed about 4,000 men on the field of battle. And when the people came to the camp, the elders of Israel said, Why has the Lord defeated us today before the Philistines? Let us bring the Ark of the Covenant of the Lord here from Shiloh, 
that it may come among us and save us from the power of our enemies. So, right there, they're asserting their rights. They're leveraging God. They're saying, we, we're, all we're doing here in this battle is asking for what's ours, right? We've got the ark. We're going to bring it into battle, and then God's going give to us, give us what belongs to us, what, what we deserve, which is to defeat the Philistines. The, a more appropriate response would, would have been, gee, we probably screwed up. <laughs> Maybe we should put on sackcloth and ashes and, 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 and repent. Or at least pray for them. Or at least pray, yeah, right. <laughs> Um, instead, the, and instead of praying, instead of invoking God by His name, they try and leverage Him with, with the Ark of the Covenant. It never turns out well. So the people sent to Shiloh, and they brought there, from there the Ark of the Covenant of the Lord of hosts, who was enthroned on the cherubim. And the two sons of Eli were there with the Ark of the Covenant. So as soon as the Ark of the Covenant of the Lord came into the camp, all Israel gave a mighty shout so that the earth resounded. And when the Philistines heard the noise of the shouting, they said, What does this great shouting in the camp of the Hebrews mean? And then they learned that the ark of the Lord had come into the camp. The Philistines were afraid, for they said, A God has come into the camp. And they said, Woe to us, for nothing like this has happened before. Woe to us, who can deliver us from the power of these mighty gods? These are the gods who struck the Egyptians with every sort of plague in the wilderness. Take courage and be men, O Philistines, lest you become slaves to the Hebrews as they have been to you. Be men and fight. So the Philistines fought, and Israel was defeated. And they fled, every man to his home. And there was a very great slaughter for 30,000 foot soldiers of Israel fell and the ark of God was captured. And the two sons of Eli, Eli the priest, Hophni and Phinehas died and when the news gets back to Eli, he falls over in his chair and dies. Right? Um, and it's all because it, it's, it's this assertion of rights. Um, uh, and, and that's really what stands out about the big ghost. He's claiming things by right. Well, what is... What is the, the basic premise that we, that we understand as Christians is that we deserve what? Nothing, right? Um, but, the, but, the, but the big ghost... Well, that's right. What we deserve is... Yeah, the, okay. That's right, exactly. Um, okay, anything else about the big ghost? Got any questions? was very upset that someone could get into heaven at the last minute. They That's right. A sinner all their life and make a deathbed confession and get there. Yes. I can't tell you how many times I've heard that conversation. Yes. People, what, you know, gee, that person, they're not a Christian, but you don't know. You don't know what they really are. Right. Did they die as a Christian or not? Uh, that comment that he made was just so, like, we knew. Yeah, Absolutely. We're supposed to rejoice when somebody's saved, but we forget that. We, we do forget very easily, yes. Nancy. Uh, I think, in a sense, the big ghost is sort of an every man, in that there's always this comparison of, well, at least I never did. Right. Right. This is where this is where Christianity makes an, a complete break with with the way the world works, right? Because the world functions by the by the law, right? And justification, self justification, is all important. So when you're if you're an employee, you have to prove your you have to show you have to follow the rules and you have to prove your merit in order to keep your job and to get a raise and to and uh, to advance, right? 
that's the way it works. That's the way, and you have to you have to um, earn your keep, right? That's the way it works. Um, but Christianity makes a complete break with that. Karen. Yeah. Yep. And then he and then he says it. I'd rather be damned than go along with you, right? Which is, uh, I mean, so this answers. This is C.S. Lewis answering the objection about, um, you know, isn't it a why? Why wouldn't God be more merciful to, you know, to everybody? Well, it just turns out it, it just so happens that um, they'd rather be damned than go along than go along with Jesus, right? So it's not a matter of it's not a matter of of injustice, right? The, the, the injustice was executed against Jesus. Go ahead, Carol. He says is killing Jack wasn't the worst thing I did. Yeah, right, exactly. I, I murdered you. I murdered you um, every day. Yeah. Nobody else knows about. Yeah. That's a lot worse than, I mean, than murdering old Jack. Exactly. Yeah. So now. Um, there are a couple of Bible stories, I think, which come to mind. A couple of gospel lessons, in particular. Um, what, in terms of, in terms of, especially like the, coming to faith at the last hour and measuring yourself against somebody else. What, any ideas come to mind to you? Laborers in the field. Look at that, Matthew, uh, Matthew twenty, um, <laughs> the bottom of the second page. You know how this story goes, right? Let's just flip to the very end of it, just before it says Luke fifteen. Right? Um, yes? you think that a lot of that C.S. Lewis used were Christ's parables? I think it could well be, yeah. And his following of Well, and, and what it, so what it reveals also is that Christ's parables are, uh, give us pictures of, u- of, of universal types, right? So this is, we can see this in ourselves, and it's an everyman sort of a thing, right? So we've all been in this position of being that, that laborer um, who came at the first hour and... Um, and grumble about the one who came at the eleventh hour, or we've been we've been both the, the younger brother and the older brother in the prodigal son story, right? Right, right. Yeah, yeah. Listen to what the, listen to what these workers say. Verse eleven. So this is, would be on the third page of your handout. Verse eleven, a couple of lines above where it says Luke fifteen, and on receiving it, this is the the first. Uh, those who came first into the harvest on receiving their wage, they grumbled at the master, saying. These last worked only one hour, and you have made them equal to us who have borne... Any talk of equality is also talk of rights, right? You've made them equal to us who have borne the burden of the day and the scorching heat. But he replied to them, Friends, I'm doing you no wrong. Do you not agree with me for a denarius? Take what, did you not agree with me for a denarius? Take what belongs to you and go. I choose to give to the last worker as I give to you. Am I not allowed to do what I choose with what belongs to me? Or do you begrudge my generosity? And that's precisely what's happening, right? The big ghost begrudges, begrudges God his, his generosity towards this murderer and doesn't recognize the generosity of God towards him. Okay? Any other, anything else? I want to show you this clip. Um, this, so it's about 10 minutes long. And this is from the, the 1977 film, Jesus of Nazareth. Now, Pete... Uh, Pastor Ladig showed it to us um, at the men's retreat talking about confession and absolution. And uh, I'm showing you a, a little bit bigger chunk, um, which involves, it, it, which sort of 
ties in the story of Matthew and Peter. Um, Matthew and Peter and the, par- the parable of the prodigal son. Um, and it's really, uh, it's really well done. It's really a, a, a great scene. So, Okay. I, I, I think it's really well done. It's a great... Uh, great how the director brings those two parts together and shows us ties it ties it to the relationship between Peter and Matthew, which is you know it's of course it's not it's not uh, it's it's all um, stuff we don't know, but it's it's such a great illustration of the story of the prodigal son, which um, you know ties directly here to this uh, to this story of the big ghost. So of course the way we'd love we'd, the way we'd love for things to have worked out for the for the big ghost would be for to him for, for him to have. Um, changed his mind, right? To to have to, to have heeded the pleas of uh, this uh, the bright person who had had come to him to lead him. Do you have any questions or comments? Anything stand out to you about that that you want to bring up? Okay, Jeanette, you're gonna say something. Oh, I was just sitting here thinking how we judge. Yeah, <laughs> I mean, you can't help but you, you, uh, the the way that when Jesus is telling the parable, and then there's a quick pan to the face of John, Matthew, the tax collector's brother, and then a pan to the face of Peter, and then a pan to the face of Matthew. You, you, you uh, it's, it's great filmography because you see yourself in all of those people, right? Um, well, Peter is the prodigal son. The way the cinematography, he's the one that's the prodigal son. I think he's the big brother in this one. Yeah, yeah, um, because he is unwilling. He says, "Why should Jesus celebrate with? Why should Jesus celebrate with a tax collector who's gone and squandered all of this wealth on on harlots and and drunkenness?" Right. So, but and and that's where that's where we see the prodigal son in in this story too, right? So the so the big ghost is the presumably the older brother, although he's that he's got other things going on too. But okay. All right. So, um, a couple things about going forward. We're going to have to end the Bible study one week earlier than we anticipated, which means the schedule that you have on your bookmark is a little bit is a little bit off. But I'll, it's an easy adjustment to make, and I'm just going to do it by executive order right now. <laughs> I don't know. They're up on the counter. I, I need one myself, so I'll go get you one too, Barbara. Um, so, next week you see that we have two chapters. Make it three chapters. Who needs one? Joanne? Thank you. Oh. oh, Elizabeth. That's okay. So, next week, three chapters. That's what? Five, six, and seven. The following week, three chapters. Eight, nine, and ten. And then you just shift the rest of them up. Two chapters for the subsequent weeks. Does that make sense? So 11 and 12 will be on May 15th, and 13 and 14 will be on May 22nd, and that'll be the last date. Okay? All right. Let's close with the Lord's Prayer. Lord, remember us in your kingdom and teach us to pray. Our Father, who art in heaven, hallowed be thy name. Thy kingdom come, thy will be done, on earth as it is in heaven. Give us this day our daily bread. And forgive us our trespasses, 
as we forgive those who trespass against us. And lead us not into temptation, but deliver us from evil. For thine is the kingdom and the power and the glory forever and ever. Amen. All right, thank you.